Good morning. Today I want to talk to you about wolves as leaders, hirelings as leaders, and shepherds as leaders. Uh, this is going to be done in two sections today. First of all, I'll be talking about wolves as leaders, and then we'll talk about shepherd leading, what a shepherd looks like, and then just a comparison between a shepherd and a hireling. This will probably be the penultimate podcast prior to the last section, which will be judging. I don't know how many specific podcasts I'll do with judging. I've still got to write that uh, sermon out. What we're going to look at today is 2 Peter 2 and um, 1 to 22. 2 Peter 2, 1 to 22. We could look at quite a few other verses and chapters within the Bible, for example, Jude, but I'm going to stick to this one and focus primarily on this one. Um, What Peter is doing is he is focusing on a false prophet, which is a wolf. And we're going to be looking at various passages of scripture in this chapter and bringing out personal points that will help you identify a wolf. Starting at verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there were false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Whenever you get false teachings and false teachers, and your doctrines are not sound, you will always get false prophets springing up, bringing destructive heresies. And these heresies are actually going to come in and they're going to, kill, steal, and destroy the things of God that God has placed within your life. And so you've got to be very, very attentive to who you sit under and what type of ministry is being poured into you. I've mentioned one of the methods in this series used by false preachers where they bring error and they place it next to truth. And here is what is being spoken about in this particular passage of Scripture. Every generation, especially now, our current generation, and I believe we're living in the last hours prior to the end of this age where we're going into the seven-year period of Daniel's prophetic word and then also the Great Tribulation when Jesus will return. False prophets are going to be much in evidence and one of the things that they're going to be doing is they're going to be responsible for leading God's people astray. Now notice what I've said, they're going to be leading God's people astray, and they're going to be bringing disaster on individuals, families, relationships, ministries, churches, and even nations. Out of this verse, I want to bring four points about the characteristics or things that you can identify a false prophet. I'm going to be mentioning this particular point quite regularly throughout this passage or throughout this podcast, this first section. One of the things you've got to remember is about a false prophet or a wolf, specifically if they're coming into the herd, coming into the flock. They're in disguise. They will try and act like you. They will try and sound like you. They will try and speak like you, they will try and be like you, but their message and their belief system is not like yours. And these items that I'm going to be giving you, these points that I'm going to be giving you are core issues within them, but these core issues within them have been cleverly disguised 
And so you've got to be able to really discern the spirit behind the person. And so you're really going to have to walk closely with the Lord, closely with the Holy Spirit during this period of time as we go in and look forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here are these four points related to verse 1. The false prophet is more interested in gaining popularity than in actually telling the truth. Okay? They're more interested in being popular than actually presenting the truth of God. And so, they watch their terminology. Always trying to change terminology, trying to be out there, radical, bringing in new stuff to gain interest and, and gather people to themselves. But if you actually begin to study what they are actually saying, you'll find out that what they are saying is not biblical truth. So they would essentially be telling you what you want to hear, not what you need to hear. And that's, a, that's essentially one of the bottom core foundations of a false prophet to, be, to identify them. They will be telling you what you want to hear, not what you need to hear. Remember, a prophet is there to align you to the truth of God. A prophet is there to come in and basically represent God and represent what he is saying and bring the truth of what he is saying into a situation or into a circumstance. These people, you can identify them because they will not be bringing the truth in. They will be bringing in what the general crowd want to hear at that particular point they will come in and they will be proclaiming peace they'll be they'll be proclaiming prosperity especially when there is no peace and no prosperity about for example jeremiah chapter 6 verse 14 they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious peace peace they say where there is no peace and can you imagine coming in and uh, the, the person's got a serious injury and they're not addressing the serious injury, but they're just putting some band-aid on it and, 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 and then walking away from that person. This is what essentially a physical representation or picture of what they are doing spiritually to the church right now. The church right now, and a lot of people within the church, seem to be drowning in a lack of understanding of the Word of God, a lack of deep biblical teaching, and a lot of personal sin, a lot of strongholds, a lot of deception going on. And these guys are coming in and adding to it because they want to get popular. They see visions of peace when God is actually saying, hang on a second, there is no peace. Think about this Think about this in the, in the sense. How many of you believe that we are living in the last days? If we are living in the last days... Any person studying the scriptures regarding the day of the Lord or the last days or when the Lord comes, when you read the scriptures out of the word of God, it doesn't talk about peace. It doesn't talk about prosperity. It talks about the opposite of that. And yet these people continually come in and they want to give you these fluffy prophecies when in actual fact they should be preparing you for the day of the Lord correctly. In Ezekiel 13, 16, these prophets of Israel who prophesied to Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the sovereign Lord. 
Ezekiel and Jeremiah were done prior to the captivity, the Babylonian captivity of, of, of Israel. And the false prophets were running around, and we're going to be giving you some of these prophecies, saying, no, 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 Nebuchadnezzar is not coming. Nebuchadnezzar is not going to sort Israel out. God's going to sort Nebuchadnezzar out. In actual fact, God was saying, I'm sending Nebuchadnezzar to actually sort you out. But these prophets were prophesying the opposite. In the days of Jehoshaphat, in 1 Kings 22, Zedekiah, a false prophet, puts on a pair of iron horns, and he says that Israel will, is, is going to deal with the Syrians the way he's running around with these horns on his head. So Micah comes in, who's a true prophet, he comes in and he, force, and, and he, and he tells of what is actually going to happen. That if Jer- Jehoshaphat goes to war, they're going to lose. Of course, Zedekiah was popular. His message was popular. His message was better. It pleased everybody. So it was accepted. Jehoshaphat went to war with the Syrians and he died. Uh, (coughs) Excuse me. In the days of Jeremiah, Hananiah, and we'll read a little bit about him in Jeremiah 28, prophesied a swift end to the power of Babylon. While Jeremiah prophesied that there's going to be servitude to the nation, the popular prophet who was false, was accepted by the people. One of the first characteristics of a false prophet is he will always tell you what you want to hear and he will not tell you the truth you actually need to hear. So that's a that's pretty important measure in terms of measuring prophecies and measuring personal prophecies. Just remember this. If we are living... At the beginning of the end of the age, if we're about to enter the seven years of Daniel, then peace and prosperity are not on the horizon for the church or for the world or for you. War is coming. These prophets are going to run around and they are going to be prophesying prosperity. This is your day. Um, These things are coming your way. This is going to happen. Yet if I read, just just take out a passage of scripture out of Revelation chapter 6 verse 9 to 11. When the fifth seal gets opened, John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So if you go and read verses 9 to 11, you'll see that there is a war coming between good and evil. And Jesus is going to return, and that period of time is not going to be a good time. And you need to be preparing for that period of time, especially if you believe these are the last days. Revelation thirteen seven. it was given power, so the beast, to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. The way I see it, and I'm going to be, and, and, and the reason why this is creeping in, uh, you know, it's, it's called, I, I call it study seep because I'm actually beginning to study my ne- a study on uh, regarding my next sermon series, which is going to be leading, which is the end times. And um, what I'm seeing here is that mankind is throwing off the yoke of God and saying, we do not want to serve or worship you. 
We want to go our own way. We want to do our own thing. And eventually, he that is withholding evil is going to step out the way. And, un- and, and, and that evil is going to unleash like a tidal wave upon the planet. And here we see it was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. How are you being prepared? If you believe this is the last day, how are you being prepared? A true prophet's going to walk in and start preparing you correctly, spiritually, getting your life in order and various other methods. But a false prophet is going to come in and start telling you, this is your day. This is the day of victory. This is the day that you're going to have prosperity. This is the day you're going to have wealth. Most Christians today, unfortunately, are going to, like the children of Israel, listen to the false prophets. Here is a story of the clash between a true and a false prophet prior to the fulfillment of a prophecy, which I spoke about earlier, Jeremiah Jeremiah and Hananiah. In Jeremiah 28, verse 1 to 17, let me read to you these 17 verses of scripture. In the fifth month of that same year, the fourth year, early in the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, the prophet Hananiah, son of Azu, who was from Gibbon, said to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, this is, what the Lord, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, King of Judah and all of the other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Then the prophet Jeremiah replied to the prophet Hanani before the priests and all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. He said, Amen, may the Lord do so. May the Lord fulfill the words you have prophesied by bringing the articles of the Lord's house and all the exiles back to this place from Babylon. Nevertheless, Listen to what I have to say in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. From early times, the prophets who preceded you and me have prophesied war, disaster and plague against many countries and great kingdoms. But the prophet who prophesies peace will be recognized as one truly sent by the Lord only if his prediction comes true. Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah and broke it. And said before all the people, this is what the Lord says, In the same way I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, off the neck of all the nations within two years. At this the prophet Jeremiah went on his way. After the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Go and tell Hananiah, this is what the Lord says, You have broken a wooden yoke, but in its place you will get a yoke of iron. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will put an iron yoke on the necks of all of the nations to make them serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. I will even give him control over wild animals. Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, yet you have persuaded this nation to trust in lies. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This very year you are going to die because you have preached rebellion against the Lord. In the seventh month of that same year, Hananiah the prophet died. Always wanting to gain popularity over and above 
bring in the truth of God. Remember, a false prophet will always tell you what you want to hear and not the truth that you actually need to hear. The second point out of this passage, this verse of scripture in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 1, is that the false prophet will always be interested in personal gain. I'm going to read to you a couple of verses of scripture. I'm not going to comment too much on this point because I'm really going to go into it when I deal with the last point. Uh, Micah chapter 3 verse 11. <clears throat> Excuse me. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Excuse me. 1 Timothy 6.5 And constant friction between people of corrupt mind, who have been robbed of the truth and who thank their godlessness and, and think their godlessness is a means to financial gain. Go and study and meditate on that passage of scripture. It's pretty frightening. Who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godlessness is a means to financial gain. Titus 1.11 They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. Always watch how these people handle money. Watch how they talk about money. Watch how they exploit situations for personal gain. Uh, investigate all these means of supporting various ministries here, there and everywhere and various orphanages. And, I know, and please, I'm not saying don't support the orphans and the widows, but just be very careful of supporting these um, promotions Look at what percentage of money actually goes to the orphans and what percentage of the money is given in and, 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 and handed over for administrative purposes. The false prophet, they are very, very covetous and they, they will use people and exploit people for their own end. And you can see this in Balaam. And I've given a teaching on Balaam. In Jude 1 verse 11. And they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. So a false prophet will always be interested in gain. My third point is that they are dissolute in their personal lives. Uh, overindulging in sensual pleasures. Isaiah 28 7. And they also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. Jeremiah 23:14. And among the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen something horrible. They commit adultery and live a lie. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that not one of them turns from their wickedness. They are like Sodom to me and people of Jerusalem like Gomorrah. Same chapter of Jeremiah 23, verse 32. Indeed, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, declares the Lord. They tell them and lead my people astray with reckless lies, yet I did not spend or appoint, uh, I did not send or appoint them, sorry. They do not benefit these people in the, in, in the least, declares the Lord. So the false prophet is all about himself or herself. And they really 
lead people into a seduction of evil uh, rather than attract people to God and the goodness of God. And what you've got to remember is that over all these hidden things is a veil of pseudo-spirituality. And one of the things that protects that pseudo-spirituality is the fact that you cannot question them because they speak on behalf of God. And that's what we're going to be dealing with in the last section in terms of being able to judge these people and, and what they say and what is the biblical validity of judging. So they will really begin to attract people through the flesh and through the flesh desires. And ultimately, if you are attracted through your flesh, it is going to lead you into dead works, which is sin. The fourth point is that above all, these false prophets lead men further away from God instead of closer to God. Just watch that. Pay attention to what they're saying. Pay attention to what they're doing. Because ultimately, they're leading people away from God and not to God. One of the key factors of a true prophet is a true prophet will always point you to Jesus and Jesus will become the very center the false prophet will always start pointing you away from it and slowly but surely Jesus begins to take a back seat and it's the ministry, the signs, the prophetic word and what you can get out of the prophetic word, desires of the flesh that become center stage. So just be very, very alert to that. Deuteronomy chapter 13 verse 1 to 5 and uh, we've, we've, we've touched on some of this, their teachings in this series on deception. Verse 1, if a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. You need to go and meditate on that because that is pretty frightening. Notice here it says, If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or a wonder. Verse 2, If the sign or wonder spoken of takes place and the prophet says, Let us follow other gods. Now just remember this. We spoke about Gnostic Jesuses earlier on. So, pay very close attention to which Jesus they want you to follow. The Lord says, you must not listen to them because in verse 3, he is saying, I'm testing you to see whether you love me with all your heart and with all your soul. Are you a true worshiper? Let's go on in verse 4. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere. Keep his commandments and obey him, serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you away from the Lord your God, commanded you to uh, try to turn you away. uh, Let me read that again. The prophet or dreamer tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. Okay? So no hashtag love, no, you know, let's, let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Purge the evil from among you. 
Deuteronomy 18.20 But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. Why is this? Because these people will lead you astray. And if you are led astray from the Lord, you are going to spend an eternity in the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So any form of universalism that they're trying to sell you is a doctrine from the pit of hell. They will lead you astray with it. They will entice you through your desires and they will get you on the false path. Now, here's one of the thing about these insidious, destructive heresies that they come in and place next to truth. The problem with these people is they don't come as opponents of Christianity. They're not coming to you and saying, I am a follower of this religion or this God, and here is a prophecy, I want you, and a doctrine, I want you to follow it. No, they're actually in the church right now. Some of them have got the biggest pulpits, some of them have got the most finances, some of them have got the most flashiest things that are going on in so-called church world today. And these are the people that are standing up and saying, you need to follow this Jesus, and it's actually agnostic Jesus. The problem is they represent or, or, or come to you as a sheep, a wolf in sheep's clothing. They come to you from within. The second thing about these guys that you've got to be very, very careful about is that they claim to be Christians. They claim to be followers of Jesus. But the Jesus they actually following is agnostic Jesus. It's a false Jesus. It's a false Christ. It's another God. And so you need to pay close attention to who you're following and know who you're following. Because they are presenting agnostic Jesus within the church today and in the previous podcasts on the subject we have dealt with that <coughs> excuse me let's move on verse 4 to 11 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 to 11 uh, one of the things I want you to notice I'm going to read this passage of scripture and then we're going to go into a couple of points uh, on various, giving you a various picture of these people and what they actually look like, is there is a fate for the wicked. There is a destination for these people. Judgment does come. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he had heard, uh, he, he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from the trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, 
They are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings, yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. So let's look at the characteristics of a wolf. I've got a couple of points that I want to go through, especially with regards to verses 9 to 11. My first point is taken out of verse 9. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. I believe that Jesus is returning very, very soon. I believe that we're about to enter into that seven-year period that, was, that Daniel spoke about and prophesied about. And I believe at the end of that seven years, the Lord Jesus is going to return. Now, generally speaking, and you'll hear this when I do my end-time teachings I know a sequence, I believe that there is a sequence of events that will unfold that you can biblically look at and, 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 and they will transpire. My style because of that, my preaching style, my teaching style is, is, is sometimes gets a little bit dark, ominous. A lot of warnings come out uh, and for, for the unprepared, it, it gets a little bit scary and um, a little bit out there for them sometimes. That's opposed to what the false prophet will come in because he wants to gain popularity. He'll give a fluff and bu bubbles, uh, rose bed, um, candy floss sermon that people will walk out feeling happy. Now, I'm not that kind of a preacher. But in light of that, I want to point your attention to the statement. In verse 9. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The one thing you've got to know about the influx of these evil people, ungodly people, satanic people, is that the Lord will look after those who truly seek Him and are fully committed to Him and are living a lifestyle of a disciple that can be depicted in Romans chapter 12 verse 11. Let me read that to you out of the Amplified Version. And they overcame, conquered him, by means of the blood of the Lamb, and by the utterance of their testimony, for they did not love and cling to their life, even when faced with death, holding their lives cheap, till they had to die for their willingness. So, in spite of what is coming, in spite of what the enemy is throwing at us, in spite of the way the church seems to be caving into these false doctrines, the Lord will keep and rescue the godly from what is coming. Number two, verse 10. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh. Okay, so we're looking at characteristics of people, of these people, the wolves. And the first one is that they follow the corrupt desires of the flesh. Now this is pretty important for you to understand. Uh, let me read that whole verse of scripture again. This is especially true for those who follow the corrupt desires of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. That's their character. Now, what I want to look at is how these people follow the corrupt desires of the flesh. Now, whenever a person begins to talk about the flesh, and the fruit of the flesh, we obviously remember and go to Galatians chapter 5 verse 19 to 21. And I'll read it shortly. But oftentimes when we're talking about the fruit of the flesh, 
we automatically look at immorality and we look at the behaviors of the physical flesh, our, our, our body flesh desires, sexual immorality, gluttony, etc., etc. But what, you, what you've got to begin to learn is that these wolves are within an environment where that should be frowned upon. So sexual immorality, even though that is beginning to change, and that's an area in which you can identify a wolf quicker, that's beginning to change, but that's not generally accepted at this point in the church or in churches. So they're not going to come overtly and practice that. But you can start to identify the, the other areas of sins, the, the, the spiritual sins, the, the corporate sins in which they, they get involved with. And I'm going to be talking about that as I go through Galatians chapter 5. So what you've got to remember about a wolf is that they are flesh-dominated people. The desires, the evil desires of their flesh always come to the fore. Their life is dominated by these lusts. In Galatians 5, we read from verse 19 to 21, amplified. Now the doings, the practices of the flesh are clear, obvious. They are immorality, impurity, indecency. That's physical flesh desires. Now we get to the spiritual ones. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, ill-temper, selfishness, divisions, dissensions, party spirit, factions, sex, with particular opinions and heresies. And now we get to corporate or groups involvement, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. I warn you before and just as I did previously, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. How do you identify a wolf if they are flesh-based? Well, the world is really pushing the church into accepting the devil's decommissioning of God's institution of marriage by forcing us to accept gay marriage, which I don't. Um, and he's, he's beginning to rewrite the ordinances and laws of God. And remember, that's what the man of lawlessness does, and he has seeping in of the end times teaching. Sorry for that. Now, these wolves are going to start to draw the church into accepting gay marriage. And they're going to cover it up with a lot of scripture regarding love, this, that, and the other, modern times, interpreting the Bible correctly, situation, ethics, etc., etc., which we've spoken of. So you'll be able to begin to identify a wolf in that particular area. But there are other areas in which you need to identify them with. And so, when you're looking at someone, you're not going to be able to see a sign unless the Lord shows you of idolatry or sorcery, which is witchcraft, or enmity or strife beaming like a neon light above their head. So you've got to look at their behavior. So you need to go in and do a study and understand what each one of these means. And then what you need to do is you need to look at how does this then manifest in the physical realm that I'm living in? When I'm looking at the person and I'm seeing something, 
does it trace to one of these things, like a heresy, which is a party spirit? Alright, so he's been in, in a false doctrine. Check their doctrines. Because that is a sin of the flesh. And these people are dominated by the flesh. And so that's the way you'll be able to begin to identify them. Uh, one of their characteristics is because they are flesh dominated. They will not be able to hide this because it's core to their who they are. What you need to do is equip yourselves with tools to identify these people. So you need to know this list. And you need to know how to interpret this list through the camouflage. And you need to especially know how this gets camouflaged behind this religious spirit of Babylon which we've been talking about. And remember at the root of all of this is selfishness. The root of evil of this last dominated life is that it proceeds on the assumption that nothing else matters but them. And what 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 pleases them, what gratifies them, that's what's going to be good. And so they will bend scripture and they will bend people to their will as long as it gratifies them. And so selfishness and the flesh go hand in hand. And remember, they are masters at camouflage. They are masters. They are chameleons. They, they, they can blend in to whatever church surroundings they will find themselves in. And so you really need to begin to learn to pray for the gift of the discerning of spirits as well. And get to know your word of God as well. Get to know these, this list in the, of the fruit of the flesh. And begin to learn to identify what it looks like as it manifests. My third point. Verse 10. Let's read it again. This is especially true of those who follow the desire of the flesh, corrupt desire of the flesh, and despise authority, bold and arrogant. They are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Okay, despising authority. Um, notice how I repeat the reading of the scripture, including most of these identifiers, because what you've got to remember is these identifiers here are tools that, the Lord has given you to be able to come in and recognize an evil man or an evil woman or a wolf in sheep's clothing. You need to go through the, the go through the teachings on the sheeples and the wolves in the churches. You need to study the teachings on the Jezebel, how it controls the religious spirit, and and you be, begin to understand essentially what what it means to be someone who despises authority. Um, remember, a worshiper essentially and is is someone that is, is 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 a person that is completely surrendered to God and accepts God's purpose for their life. And these people are not worshippers; they're not sheep; they're not followers of the Lord. And so they despise the authority of the Lord and they worship false gods. Number four, verse ten. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of the flesh and despise authority, bold and arrogant. They are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Now the word bold here, well, this you might wonder, well, why is boldness a bad thing? Doesn't it sound contradictory? Because in 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul says to Timothy, for the spirit of God gave uh, gave us for, for the spirit of God gave us does not make us timid for the spirit of God gave us does oh, excuse me for this 
For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. I'm really getting tongue-tied at the moment. Now, there are quite a different, a few different words, uh, definitions for the word bold. For example, bold, daring, fearless, intrepid, brave, courageous, valiant, heroic, plucky. Those are good words. Or, impudent, impertinent, insolent, presumptuous, irreverent, discourteous, disrespectful, insubordinate, ill-mannered, unmanly, rude, brazen, shameless. Now look at how the Amplified Version translates the Greek word Ptolemides. And particularly those who walk after the flesh and indulge in the lusts of polluting passions and scorn and despise authority, presumptuous and daring, self-willed and self-loving creatures. So there, there are two types of daring. There is a daring that is noble and a mark of courage, but there is a daring that is evil, shameless in the performance of things, and it's an affront to all decency and what is right. The highest form of an evil dare is a person's audacity to stand before God and defy God's will for their life. And so this is what this person is. He stands before God and in his boldness he defies God's will for his life and says, I will do it my way. Number five, arrogant. This is especially true for those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Again, look at what the Amplified Version does. Presumptuous and daring, self-willed, self-loving creatures. Self-willed. self that's the root of all sin. It's the root of all the rebellion against God. I will do it my way. I will not accept God as head of my life. I will not accept God's supremacy as the God of all creation. I will do it my way. So here is someone who just wants to please themselves, no matter what it costs, no matter what it costs them, no matter what it costs others. This is someone who, orthades, the Greek word, is self-pleasing, self-willed, who is arrogant. So at the root of all this person does, he's doing it to please himself. He's doing it because it's his will. He wants to do it. it there is this arrogance there. And finally, number six, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. In the Amplified Version, they scoff at and revile dignitaries, glorious ones, without trembling. If you go back over the series that we've been doing and look at some of the DVDs and clips that we've been showing you, you will see how this is this this disregard and and um what can I say, this ill mannered approach to godly things and to the supernatural realms how they they go at, go at it with, with, with a disregard for the protocol set in place it, it, it's, it's frightening what I see. Uh, I, I, it's frightening some of the behaviors that I actually see in some churches with regard to entering into the spiritual realm. The Holy Spirit slosh fests. 
you know, laughing and behaving like gibbering apes and saying that that's the Holy Spirit's anointing. The behavior of these people and their interaction with angelic beings is frightening to say the least. And so these are some of the characteristics of these people. Let's move on. Self-delusions and deluding others. Now, I want to move between two biblical translations here, the NIV and the Amplified Version. And uh, from verse 12 to 14 of 2 Peter 2, so I'll read the two of you and then just explain and, and, and say a few words about this. But those people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. The idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in, in greed and a cursed brood. When I read scriptures like this, I have to laugh at those who are pious, simpering, pseudo-loving people coming along and saying, I mustn't judge because, you know, judgment is not of the Lord. And, you know, and God is a God of love. But yet when I read scriptures like this, I just I shake my head when I, when I hear them. Let's, let's go over that in the Amplified Version. But these people, like unreasoning beasts, mere creatures of instinct, born only to be captured and destroyed, railing at the things of which they are ignorant, they shall utterly perish in their own corruption, in their destroying they shall surely be destroyed. Been destined to receive punishment as the reward of their unrighteousness, suffering wrong as they hire for their wrongdoings, they count it a delight to revel in the daytime, living luxuriously and delicately. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions and carousing together even as they feast with you. They have eyes full of harlotry, insatiable for, uh, in, for sin. They beguile and bait and lure away unstable souls. Their hearts are trained in covetousness, lust, and greed. They are children of a curse, exposed to cursing. Now that is what the Bible calls a wolf, a false prophet. Evil men like brute beasts, slaves to animal instincts. Now an animal has no destiny. So this might come as a shock to universalists. You know, they preach a destiny with God and everybody ultimately is going to get to God because God is a God of love and grace. But for people who deny Jesus Christ, who deny God's authority over us, these people are likened unto animals, beasts. For them, everything is about pleasure. Look at our culture today, especially in the West. It's a culture that is absolutely set up to gratify every whim and pleasure. You know, I, I enjoy the cooking shows. And, but but what, what is amazing is that there is just so many of them. And everybody is just seeming to want to train their palates to 
finer and finer dining experiences. That's what happened at the fall of the Roman Empire. One of the things at the fall of the Roman Empire. And this is what's happening today in the West. The church is buying into this. Peace, peace. This is your day message. And it's dangerous. Both a physical and spiritual suicide policy for, for those people who actually sign up for this stuff. To make sure pleasure is the be-all and the end-all of life. That's a suicide policy and it's going to end even as pleasure is lost. You know, a self-serving pleasure policy is ultimately going to wreak absolute havoc within a person's life. It's going to mess up your physical body. It's going to wreck your emotions. It's going to wreck your relationships. And it's going to sabotage your spiritual relationship with God. I mean, a glutton ultimately is going to destroy his appetite. A drunkard's going to destroy his health. A sensationalist is going to destroy his body. And the self-indulgent, well, you're not going to get peace of mind. And so the Bible, the, the Peter, the, the author, says that these people are blots. When they come in and have fellowship with you, they are blemishes. They're like wild animals running around, unfit to be offered to God. This is what the Bible says. Now a person who gives themselves over to a lifestyle of self-indulgence and pleasure ultimately has no future. And eventually all the self-pleasure, all the self-living, all the self-will is going to end up where that person and that individual is going to pay a serious price. With eyes full of adultery, verse 14. In the Amplified Version, they have the eyes of harlotry, insatiable for sin. I mean, you can go and read what that looks like in the Old Testament with the story of Ahab, Jezebel, and Naboth in 1 Kings chapter 21. You know, he's looking out his window and suddenly he wants someone else's property. Why? Does he need it? No. Now remember, within the church... This behavior is going to be very, very well camouflaged and very, very well disguised. And so you're going to have to really understand and know and identify the fruit of the flesh and how it manifests today and what it looks like today. These people have trained themselves to be deceptive. They have trained themselves in this destructive way and they've trained themselves in using this camouflage. The biggest danger at this point in time is when they begin to take other people along with them. And that is the most frightening thing. I'm going to end off there. Uh, I've given you a couple of um, points for you to identify a wolf as a leader. The last thing I want to say to you in verse 15 and 16 of 2 Peter 2 as I round off this section, is you must personally always check the road that you are walk, walking on. If you have a family, you're the priest and the head of your home, you must always check and make sure your family is walking on the straight and narrow. In verse 15, they have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam son of Beor, Beza, who loved the wages of wickedness, 
But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Okay, these are people who have left the straight way. They've gone off and follow it and, and begun to follow other gods. As a child of God, you have no obligation to them. Now you need to learn to use these tools to basically be able to identify them. In the second section, we're going to look at shepherds and look at a comparison between a shepherd and a hireling. We're looking at the leader as a shepherd and we're going to be combining that with identifying a hireling. <coughs> oh, excuse me. A key factor in understanding a true shepherd is to essentially look at the heart of Jesus as the great shepherd. And that will give you a very, very clear picture of what a true shepherd looks like. Now, the word shepherd as a leadership title is probably the least used in the church today, but probably represents completely what a leader of a local church should be doing. What I'm going to do now is go through various the various titles that get used in the church and uh, look at them very briefly and then look at the shepherd and then look at various characteristics of the shepherd and end off looking at a column list of the difference between a shepherd and a hireling. Now, the word bishop gets used and that came from the Gentile world into the church and it's designated as someone who is a leader or oversees or superintendents the flock of God. So, in the apostolic era, that would be someone who leads a local church. One of the problems with that title today, especially within the Roman Catholic Church, is it gives over a picture of uh, real authoritarian, administrative, uh, dictatorial uh, a picture and doesn't really describe the full meaning of the word shepherd as a leader of a local congregation. The next word, presbyter, the word comes into the church from Judaism. This word goes back as far as Moses and was the type of leader that the Jews had. Now the term bishop and presbyter get used interchangeably in the early church where the church combined the Gentile and Jewish worlds together. In the early church, the presbyter were elders, primarily men of advanced years and experience. Uh, but also, again, fell short of giving the full scope and meaning of the word shepherd. Next word was priest. And this had a long history in both Judaism and paganism. In the Judean religion, the priest represented the people to God and God to the people. Now, Jesus and his disciples used this word very little in the New Testament. Now, the ultimate New Testament meaning of the word priest is as it is applied to the individual Christian. And this revelation was given to Peter. Peter calls the church a royal priesthood. 1 Peter 2.5, the New King James Version, You also as living stones are being built up 
a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And then in verse 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh, just by the way, uh, this teaching comes out of our leadership teaching and it's derived from the teaching of Frank Damasio and Kevin Connor. So if it sounds, if, if I sound sort of a little bit shaky when I'm delivering it, I'm trying to translate it directly from teaching a group of people to be leaders and shepherds to showing you tools on what you need to look for in a shepherd in a, uh, if you're going into a church environment or look, coming out of a Babylonian church and go, trying to find a church environment where there's a true shepherd. One of the problems, going back to the word priest now, one of the problems of the word priest is it's gained a very, very negative term because of the abuse uh, as it is applied to Christian leadership and real, it's created a lot of spiritual bondage for people. A real, it's, it doesn't really, you know, it's moved quite a long way away from actually depicting what a shepherd actually is. Then we have the word preacher. A great tradition this word has in the church, and it describes the public preaching and speaking aspect of the shepherd or the pastor. Now, unfortunately, the meaning and value that was placed on this has led to a false belief that being a good preacher equates to being a good shepherd. Um, and so... What has developed from this is the pulpit-pew relationship, which is a long way away from the role of the shepherd. Then we get the word minister. Now, this is applied to church leaders, particularly pastors, who, whether they are leaders professionally ordained by man or spiritually ordained by God. Now, our application of the word sometimes gives no distinction between a, a true servant of God and a man who takes on the title for himself but is not actually a true servant of God. And so this title has been applied to both people that have been divinely called and ordained of God and those people who have been not divinely called but have been ordained by an organization or a state government. Now... This has led to a misuse of the term minister because essentially a servant of God is a minister. God calls every individual Christian to a particular ministry function. In my view, every person in our church is a minister. Uh, this has probably led to the confusion that only the work of a professional ordained clergy minister only someone like that can perform spiritual works within the church and so you've got that clergy laity divide and this word then has been given the idea of professionalism and also this word clashes now with the true meaning of the word shepherd so now we come to the word shepherd and um, the word shepherd is a very very descriptive title and it's used throughout the Bible. Now, the best way to understand the function and ministry of a shepherd is to actually 
look at the relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament and the New Testament and the various pictures that the Bible gives relating to that because that can then fully give, give, give you a picture of the importance of this role and the diversity of the role. Uh, unfortunately, in history, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, whenever the shepherd gets knocked about and goes down, the sheep then gets gets scattered, and so we, you can you can go and read that in passages like Numbers twenty seven, verse fifteen to seventeen. Uh, you can read it in one Kings twenty two seventeen, Ezekiel thirty four four to six, Zechariah ten two, and Zechariah thirteen seven. Now, a shepherd is a man who takes care of the sheep. Uh, it's a person who cares for and protects the sheep. It's a person who guards the sheep, is a friend to the sheep, and a companion to the sheep. Now, what the shepherd in the natural world does often reflects and clearly reflects what a shepherd in the spiritual world does. And so a spiritual shepherd does the same work of protecting, guarding, and feeding God's people. The Lord is called the shepherd of his people many times through scripture. So let's just look at some of the, the illustrations of what the, the Bible depicts as a relationship between the Lord and his people, and then you can basically begin to relate the different roles that the shepherd has to take in ministering to God's people. The first one, father and child relationship. So here we have a relationship of a father with his children, and it's the duty of the father to raise these children up in a very, very protective environment uh, of love and bringing each of these children into a point of maturity where they can go forth and become effective members of society and of the church. And so fathers are there to create that environment where his children can grow up and love him sincerely without fear and relate, begin to learn how to relate to him learn how to relate to their mother, their brothers and their sisters and those people outside the families and basically bring the child to a point of godly maturity in all of their relationships. Next picture is that of the husband and the wife. So we have this picture of Christ and the church and the bond of marriage. One of the reasons why the enemy hates marriage and why he's destroying it. Uh, the husband provides the home and the environment in which he invites his wife to come in. And the husband is to give love, his love first. And that is the environment in which the wife comes in and responds. It is an environment of love. And so we've got to see how the shepherd has to be the initiator in giving his love for the sheep. And how he's got to provide for them a spiritual home, a, a, a safe ground. Uh, head and body relationship. This talks to the governing relationship and the protecting relationship. So Jesus Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. So he governs and protects his church. So the shepherd needs to learn how to use the instruments of his office, which are the rod and staff, in his hand to both govern and protect his sheep, his local church body, from dangers within and dangers without. So both these pictures uh, 
in, in both of these pictures, the head is the covering of the body. So the body is many-membered, but the head is singular. And so what the under-shepherd has to remember is that he is under the head, which is the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And he's ultimately accountable to the great shepherd. The next picture we get of vine and branches. We see this coming out in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, where Jesus is pictured as the branch, and we are pictured as as the... the, the, the He's pictured as the vine and we are the branches. Now, what this shows is that he is the source of life and power for the branches. And that has to come from him who is the vine. And there, is a, there, there, there has to be that such a close relationship that the, it, it would take great difficulty to, to, to discern the difference or the dividing point between when the branch becomes a vine or when the vine becomes a branch. In that passage, Jesus said that the branches have to bear fruit or they're going to be purged by the husbandman. Now, what happens is if the branches are not producing fruit, the husband will come in and take a sharp knife and cut away that which is not producing fruit. As a shepherd, with the close relationship that we have to get with the sheep, we will then have to learn how to use the rods of our other uh, the rods the um, instruments of our office which is the rod and the staff to be able to deal with the sheep uh, regarding things that are unprofitable within their lives then you've got the husbandman and the vineyard relationship so the husbandman or the farmer caring for the vineyard uh, sometimes a vineyard gets over, overgrown, so the husband has to come out and clean out all the rubbish and tie it up and tie it skillfully back using fruit so that the vineyard is a, a producer of fruit. So God's shepherds have got to be sensitive enough with their sheep to be able to discern the spiritual times and seasons within their lives and basically to deal with issues within their lives so that these sheep will become fruitful for the Lord. The next picture is potter and clay. So God's hands, the, the, the clay are completely in God's hands and he forms the vessel, the individual, he forms the church. The clay can't tell or ask the potter what he is doing. And that is why the Lord, that is how the Lord deals with his people. Now the shepherd should also be able to relate to the sheep in the form that they are there to assist God in developing the characteristic and shape of the lives of the sheep. The next picture is that of the captain and the army, and this picture is, speaks of discipline and authority and training. So the Lord is the head, the Lord is the head of his army, and we as shepherds are there to bring discipline, authority, correction, and training so that the sheep become war horses so that God will be glorified. And so through many drills, through the discipline, through training, through teaching, through mentoring, we prepare God's people so that he can use them whenever he can as the captain of the hosts of heaven. And so we've got to shepherd and train his people to have them fit for his use. The other picture is creator and creature. God Obviously, all-powerful creator of the universe, through his words, the worlds began, everything came into being. Um, at his word, 
everything is formed at his word everything exists and this is a picture of 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 a mighty god then reproducing his image and likeness in creation and so the relationship here is um one where through obedience and relationship with Jesus Christ, we enter a relationship with this all-powerful God. And and as a shepherd, we have to be an instrument through which God can then come and create new life within his people. And obviously we've got the shepherd and sheep illustration, which is that really lovely, intimate relationship of, of a shepherd carrying a wounded sheep over his shoulder leading and guarding his uh, flock from one good pasture to another good pasture and protecting them. What I'm going to give you now are a few types of duties of a shepherd and what a shepherd does as his job. So what I've now finished with is giving you the pictures of the different types of relationships that the shepherd has with the sheep. And now I'm going to give you some specific roles which you've got to be aware of, of what a shepherd is. And so the first role is the shepherd as a watchman. So one of the things that a shepherd needs to do is he's got to watch over the flock as a watchman, as a guard. So in the Old Testament times, these shepherds would build observation towers where they could look over the countryside to see of any approaching dangers from the environment, such as floods or fires, or from predators on the land or from the air. And uh, the, the shepherd has got to be a really far-seen watchman, continually alert for the dangers that, he, that could creep in and, and destroy his flock or certain elements of his flock so he's he can't be a, a lazy or unseen watchman it's interesting paul exhorts the ephesian elders when he leaves them to watch over the flock in this way in acts chapter 20 28 to 31 in the new king james version therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the holy spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of god which he purchased with his own blood for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn you night and day with tears. And we've got this similar writings all the way through Paul's writings and into Hebrews. 1 Corinthians 16:13. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Colossians 4.2, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.6, therefore let us not sleep as do as others do, but let us watch and be sober. 2 Timothy 4.5, but you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the hard work and evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Hebrews 13.17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. So as a leader over God's flock, we've got to be really diligent watchmen because the church has a lot of enemies. And remember, the enemies are coming from 
without, so that's Babylon and Egypt, and the enemies are, are, are being raised up within, and those are people that are going astray, those are the false prophets, the wolves that are in sheep's clothing. And so a lazy shepherd or a hireling will leave the church open to attack, and um, a false shepherd or a wolf in the pulpit will inflict some harsh wounds on God's people and steal God's people from their God-given destin destiny that God has provided for them in Jesus Christ. So the true shepherd, the watchful shepherd, is there to protect from what can come in and, and, and savage and damage the sheep. So the first function, one of the first functions is that of a watchman. Then we have that of a protector, the shepherd protector. This is very close to the role of the, of the watchman. So, the, so he's here to guard, protect and defend. Now, it's interesting, the parallel between sheep and congregation members uh, or, or, you know, is, is, is very uncanny. Oftentimes, you'll find that the, that parallel exists. So I'm going to give you a natural illustration of what some sheep are like. So some sheep are like the most defenseless, defenseless of all animals. Now remember, I'm not, tell, I'm not talking about those that are becoming disciples, those that are becoming war horses and being able to stand up and, and step forward into the army of God. I'm talking about those that are continually there as sheep, sheeple. They've, they've got no natural weapons of attack, very docile, which opens them up to um, domination very easily. It, it seems that they are the only animals that depend completely on human protection. Uh, so the shepherd is the flock's main defense mechanism, main guard against any hazard that comes from any situation whatsoever. Now at times, the shepherd has to actually risk his life for the sheep. Uh, they are completely ignorant on how to survive in the wilderness. And so there's a continual vigilance on behalf of the shepherd as he watches over the sheep in the wilderness. Because they've got this tendency to wander and follow anything and anyone. So the shepherd, oftentimes, if he's leading his flock in the wilderness, would build a temporary barricade. And he himself would be the door of the barricade. And so the enemy, if it couldn't come over or under the barricade would have to come over or under him and he'd put his life on the line for the sheep. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ himself did. Then we've got the shepherd guide. This is probably as important a role for the sheep or for the shepherd to fulfill for, on behalf of the sheep. Uh, sheep are not independent travelers and no sense of direction, very easily led astray, wandering circles, very easy to get taken by predators. You know, when they're grazing, nose to the ground and they'll just eat until there's no more grass to eat. And so what happens is often in those periods, of, in those times, good pastures would be scattered around um, harsh and hard and dry land. And so the shepherd would have to personally know the land in which he's taking the sheep in. And the shepherd would personally have to guide the sheep as... Uh, he leads them from good pasture to good pasture, making sure that they are able to um, get well watered. And you find that in Psalm 23. You've got a beautiful picture of that. So the, 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 the next one is the physician, the shepherd physician. Uh, 
Now, the English word physician means to heal and it relieves or comforts. The Hebrew word or the concept in the Hebrew language is one who mends by stitching, cures, causes healing, repairs and makes whole. And in the Greek language, it means to make whole or set free by curing. Now, these various definitions capture the the heart of of the ministry of the shepherd. And so if you're coming out of a Babylonian church that has had a hireling in who's allowed wolves to come in or who's been led by a wolf, then these are interesting and very uh, good pointers, tools for you to be able to go in and look at a leader and measure him according to these standards and these pictures that I've given you out of the Word of God. And so just remember that the spiritual shepherd is one that will fulfill Isaiah 61, bring healing to the brokenhearted, preaching the good news, etc. And just go and read Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 3. So the true shepherd's heart is for the heart of his father. And he will continually go to his father and his father will continually send him back to say, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Now, let me finish off this section by giving a comparison between a hireling and a shepherd. The opposite of a true shepherd is a hireling. Um, If we look at that word Today, most people today would fit into the term hireling because one hireling is someone that is hired out for wages day by day or by year. So, technically, most of us fit into this category. Most people uh, are paid for a period of set time to do work on behalf of someone else. Now, to express the difference of these two terms in today's language, that of a hireling, that of a shepherd, uh, the difference would be that someone who has just a job to go to, no matter how important the position is, as opposed to someone who has a career to go to. So that would be the difference between a hireling and a shepherd in today's terms. Uh, The difference between a person who would assign a job to a dollar rating, a dollar thing, and they're there just to pass time, get money and get out, as opposed to someone who who is there to develop a career, to develop experience, to develop skills, to develop relationships, increase productivity, and basically build a better future. the comparison of a hireling shepherd in the Old Testament is even better than what I've just given you here. And so I'm going to give you a few scriptures with regards to the definition of a hireling as applied to the Old Testament. So in 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 5 and 2 Chronicles 24 verse 12, a hireling is an ordinary laborer. A hireling is a mercenary soldier in 2 Samuel chapter 10 verse 6, 2 Kings 7 Verses 6 and 1 Chronicles 19.6. A hireling is a goldsmith, Isaiah 46.6. Six. 
a band of loose fellows, gang, Judges 9.4, false priests, Judges 18.4, Balaam, Deuteronomy 23 verse 4, Nehemiah 13 verse 2, hostile counselors, Ezra verse 4, uh, chapter 4 verse 5, and false prophets, Nehemiah 6.13. So in contrast, the general concept of a hireling with that of a shepherd, uh, I would say that a hireling is a leader who receives pay for his job but doesn't have a heart for the job, whereas a shepherd has not only a heart for the job but a heart for the people. A hireling is ambitious for position, for power, for financial support, but does not really have a love for God's people. Uh, a hireling definitely doesn't have the heart of a shepherd. And um, I'm going to give you a list now of two different column, two columns, uh, and and just read out a list, the list of the comparison of the two, and this will be a good indicator to basically discern whether you're sitting under a hireling or under a shepherd. In the first column, I've got a hireling, and the second column, I've got a shepherd. So the hireling labors only for money, Matthew 20, verse 7. Shepherd labors out of love. Has no heart for the people, has a heart for the people. Uh, leaves when trouble comes, Jeremiah 46, 21. Gives his heart for the sheep, John 10, 11. Is, an unf- is unfaithful to his master, is faithful to his master. Finds himself, feeds himself, not his sheep. Ezekiel 34, 3, feeds the sheep. Neglects the sheep, tends care, ten, tenderly cares for the sheep. Lacks mercy, Ezekiel 34, 4, is full of mercy. Is harsh and cruel, is gentle, kind and loving. Drives people too hard, leads people wisely. Scatters the sheep, unites the sheep. Is not willing to make personal sacrifices, Ezekiel 34, verse 2 is always willing to make personal sacrifices, is ambitious for position but avoids responsibility, is not orientated to position but has a servant heart, does not take time to bind up sheep's wounds, binds the brokenhearted and heals the bruises, domineers sheep, leads sheep lovingly, does not care about sheep's needs, discerns the needs of the sheep, produces unfruitfulness in the sheep, causes the sheep to be fruitful, is anxious at the close of day, is peaceful and watchful, especially at night, has no heart part in has no part in the master's inheritance. Rece- uh, receives the flock of God as his inheritance. Makes no personal investment in the sheep. Invests his life in the sheep at the highest price he can pay. Has no balance in discipline. Uh, too harsh, not at all. Disciplines with the rod and staff of God in love and correctly. Limits his worst work to a given period of time. Isaiah sixteen fourteen and Isaiah twenty one sixteen. Gives himself to work full time because it is calling and it is his life. Forgets the lost or those driven away. Seeks out the lost and those driven away. It's a work of men's hands. Psalm 135, 15 to 18. Psalm 115, 4 to 8. It is a work of God's hands. So the, the <clears throat> excuse me, the hireling has a mouth that speaks not, has eyes that see not, has ears that hear not, has a nose that senses not, has hands that does not touch or feel and produces the same unfeeling, undiscerning and carnal nature in the people. And a shepherd has a mouth that speaks spiritual things, eyes that discern spiritual things, ears that hear spiritual things, a nose that senses spiritual things, hands that touch spiritual things and produces his same feelings, discernings and spiritual nature 
in the people of God. Alright, as we bring this to a close, please remember that these are tools to equip you to basically learn how to discern between a wolf, a shepherd and a hireling. And in the next section, which will be our last section, we'll be looking at in this series, Deception in the Church, will be how to judge a wolf. Thank you. God bless. Thank you.